Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change? All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. Welcome to our interview series on Brave Feminine Leadership. I am absolutely thrilled to welcome Adam Bryant to the conversation this morning. Great to have you here, Adam. Great to be here. Thank you. Before we kick in, I'm just going to run through a brief bio and just let the audience know um, if they haven't come across you before, Adam, a little bit about your background. So Adam joined the Exco Group, an executive mentoring firm, as managing director in 2017 after a 30-year career in journalism, including 18 years at the New York Times. In addition to his many roles there as a reporter and editor, he created the weekly Corner Office column in 2009 and interviewed 525 CEOs and other leaders over a decade. Adam's written three books based on the themes that emerged from those interviews, including his latest, The CEO Test, Master the Challenges that Make or Break All Leaders, which has recently been published by Harvard Business Review. I'm really excited to have you join us this morning, Adam, and I would love, before we kick into our, our conversation, is just to ask you to expand a little bit about your background um, and as part of that, you know, why you're who you are. Sure. So I'm Canadian by birth, uh, border hopped as a kid between the United States. So I, I would say I'm bilingual. I speak Canadian and American. Um, and uh, my father was a journalist and I probably caught the journalism bug from him early on. Um, and I'd say, you know, both my parents, especially my late father, was a, a world champion listener. And mm -hmm. it's something that I think a lot about. Um, and it's been important uh, sort of for me as a journalist and also thinking about leadership. I, I saw just through his listening skills, almost like have these transformative conversations with people where they, you know, it sort of, he would bring out the best in them and all. So I, I saw that over and over. Um, you know, I, from early 20s, I dreamed of working at the New York Times and got there when I was 2019 and uh, uh, had a lot of different roles there as a reporter in the business section, as an editor. I left the Times to go to Newsweek magazine for six years and went back to the Times. Um, you know, in terms of formative experiences, I played a ton of sports when I was a kid and um, was, you know, I'm, I'm sort of wired as a team player. I, I love being part of a, a really good team. I have no patience or tolerance for, you know, people who don't know how to play on a team or anything like that. But I also remember just a young age watching, you know, I'd watch football games on television. And as much as I was watching the players, I was so intrigued by the different coaching styles. You know, there'd be somebody on the sidelines sort of yelling and flapping their arms. And then there'd be another coach who just sort of standing there with their arms folded across their chest. And so I was just so intrigued about like different leadership styles. So I guess everything came full circle and I've spent a lot of time in the leadership sandbox, but uh, that was probably some of the early interest. Um, that's a fantastic story. Everyone else is watching the game and you're watching the coach on the sidelines. <laughs> um, I would love to ask you around the Corner Office series. 
and yeah. you know how that came about what the sort of idea behind that was yeah so it's a pretty simple story I, as i mentioned i was a reporter at the new york times um uh in the business section for about eight or nine years and during that time i i did a lot of stories about a lot of companies, different industries, and I interviewed a lot of CEOs. And, um, you know, the way most interviews with CEOs are done by the business press, if you boil them down, there are essentially two questions like, you know, what's your plan to win? Like, what's your strategy? And what about the competitors? And it's almost like a Wall Street analyst interviewing a CEO. And that's fine. I mean, I learned a lot. There's an audience for those kind of stories, but I just found the more time I spent with CEOs, I just became really intrigued with them as people. And I found myself wanting to set aside all those questions and just say like, how do you do what you do? And how did you learn to do what you do? Um, and at some point, all of that rolled up into this very simple what if question, which was what if I sat down with CEOs and never asked them a single question about their company? And instead, just ask them about leadership lessons they've learned over the course of their lives and how they learned them and, you know, how they think about culture and teams and hiring and what questions they ask and career, all these kind of timeless topics rather than timely. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I launched the series, I mean, I, I, I will share that there was a little bit of skepticism from a couple of colleagues, like, do you really think you're going to get something from them? And I was like, I think I'm going to get something from them. Um, and sort of that started this journey of by now interviewing more than 700 CEOs, um, all almost all except for the pandemic, almost all with this kind of timeless lens, like what have you learned? Um, I, I will share an, another sort of founding principle of that series. Um, so the second what if question I asked myself was, what if I interview a lot of women and people of color and never ask them any race or gender specific questions? Mm -hmm. So in other words, to interview everybody the same way as leaders only. Um, and because uh, I, I, I do find and still to this day that sometimes, um, you know, there's kind of questions that are too predictable, right? About, you know, oh, you know, your wife, your mother, your CEO, how do you do it all? And, and to me, I felt like let's, you know, just for this series anyways, imagine, you know, sort of getting beyond that, so. Yeah. Did you find, just I'm curious to know, um, and that's such a terrific concept um, and obviously was incredibly successful. Did you find that inevitably some of the questions you were trying to I mean, I guess you weren't trying to avoid them, but some of the questions that you weren't asking, you know, you weren't asking about the company, you weren't asking about gender, and you weren't asking about race. Did you find that they right. came inevitably into the conversations or not? Yeah, they very often did. Um, and again, my approach was I wasn't going to push it, but if you're going to bring it up, I'll go there. And there's this one CEO who, uh, who went on uh, quite a riff about how hands down, uh, women are better managers than men, like no doubts. And, you know, it's just, just this great extended riff. So so people have definitely brought it up um, and and I'm happy to go there. I mean, there's there's just so many interesting strands. Um, and in terms of, I, I, I will say that, you know, having done at least when I was at the New York Times doing 525 in a row and kind of never missed a week, that to me, there were, and I'm sure you're finding this too with your own, you get this opportunity to always try out new questions, right? Like yes. what yields better insights and stories. Um, and uh, and what I found over time was, um, 
you know, I, I would always start my interviews with the same three questions, which is like, tell me about when you were a kid. Um, tell me about your parents who, who, or whoever raised you. Uh, and the third question was, how do you think they've influenced your leadership style today? And I always found that if they were open, honest, and candid with those answers, um, that I felt like I kind of got them as human beings, like those formative experiences early on are just so powerful. So, uh, so that was kind of my approach. Can I ask Adam, um, you know, coming at, and, and clearly my focus in these conversations is leadership, but it is also with a gender diversity lens on it. Um, and that's as our conversations have been, that's come about because through mentoring, um, you know, a number of leaders, often I'll see a brief that flags the specific skill set that, that we might be focusing on with someone. And one of the things that stood out to me was more often with females, it would be around helping them find their voice, as an example. Um, interestingly, you know, often with males, it would be about listening, which it just intrigued me, the differences that you would see come through those briefs. And um, I do want to ask you a couple of questions. I guess the first one is, when we think about diversity, do you, what do you think, what's the question we should be asking? To me, as organizations, um, the question is that I think people should be asking is, is it is it action or is it outcomes or rather activity versus outcomes? Because I feel like for the last 20 years, if not longer, that it's almost like this bullet point, like it's like a political talking point that gets shared among all the politicians. Like there's this talking point that is as if all the companies shared it. And it goes like this, which is, you know, we get it. This is really important. We're working on it. We're not where we want to be yet, but we're really committed to this. And companies have been saying that for 20 years. And, you know, during one of our interviews, somebody said it's the only part of corporate America where people think they should get like, you know, a good grade just for effort, yes. right? Whereas any other aspect of business. So I just think, I think we're moving into this era where, um, the talk isn't good enough anymore. And I think that pressure is coming from boards. I think it's coming from employees, institutional shareholders, just like enough of the talk already. Your leadership team is still almost entirely white and male. Um, and I know you're making improvements in the pipeline, but um, you've got to close that gap between the walk and the talk. You know, and so to me, when I think about diversity at an institutional level and what can and should and needs to be done, that's what I think about, you know, and we can talk about this later, but, um, you know, we've started this series called Leading in the B-Suite uh, on LinkedIn, in which we interview um, prominent Black leaders about race and sort of having the diff difficult conversation. And I've, through that series, I mean, my learning curve has been incredibly steep, sort of understanding some of the challenges and headwinds that you inevitably face when, you know, if you're Black in America or frankly in many other countries. And just at a very personal level, the way I think about it, diversity is, is very simply just to sort of have this idea of like, if you've met one person, you've met one person, just see that, you know, in our minds, what prejudice really manifests itself as, as we make judgments about entire race, whether it's blacks or Latinos or anybody or people from Australia, right? And I think if you just go through life with this lens on, if I've met one person, I've met one person, I think it just kind of helps remove that filter and just see the other human being. 
Mm. I do want to ask you about those B-suite interviews because I think they're fabulous. And there's a couple that I read recently that I will ask you about um, as our conversation goes on. Um, I wanted to um, just stay on our theme of, of leadership then. And I wanted to ask a question of you. Um, and, I, and I did ask this and you're, I loved your answer, but it was, I asked you to single out who you think the top two global leaders are uh, currently. Yeah, and you know what I was, uh, I'm going to apologize for my lab in the background, you probably hear her making noise. Um, you know, when I was doing the corner office series, um, in many ways, I had, I was in a lucky position where I was getting pitched all day long by companies saying, please interview our CEO. And, and I was also thinking about, well, who do I want to interview for the series? But you know, what I've come to appreciate over time is sometimes these people who are really big names in leadership, I mean, the people who sort of grab all the headlines, very often there's this dark side of them that comes out over time. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, to me, it's almost like the Facebook effect. And sometimes like the happiest families on Facebook, you find out are really dysfunctional behind the scenes, right? Um, and I think there's a little bit of that with the sort of CEO celebrity machinery. So I just, you know, I, I found um, over time that I don't know what's the right word, sort of careful or not sort of reflexively skeptical, but just um, wanting to do a lot of homework because, again, now you're interviewing people. I mean, to me, the, the, the three most important words are candid, open and honest. And like to me, those are table stakes for a good interview. And um, I also found sometimes with the the uh, the sort of the bigger name CEOs, they were almost media trained, you know, to within an inch of their life. And, you know, every personal story was braided in with kind of a corporate messaging story. And to me, um, the very best interviews are ones where it, it felt very like in the moment. And sometimes to me, the real magic is like asking a CEO question, like how have your parents influenced your leadership style today? That's not something a lot of people think about, but you know, to see people connecting dots in real time, that's really exciting for me. So I interviewed so many people that nobody had ever heard of. And um, you know, there wasn't necessarily like a correlation between like the bigger the name, the CEO, the bigger the company, the better the interview. I just I think everybody's got great stories and it's just finding those people who are willing to share them and be vulnerable about it. Was there one thing? that stood out you know if you think back over the the series or think back over your interviews was there one thing that stood out about this group of people you interviewed and a, a few things i know you said one but i may take a few um uh i i because i would always ask questions about their early lives and and their parents and things i did start seeing patterns um and just the 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 sheer number of CEOs that I've interviewed who grew up in incredibly tough circumstances. Um, it's, uh, it, it really started to blow me away. And it was just, it wasn't just that they grew up without any money. Um, the number of people have told me that they had like alcoholic parents or an abusive father. Um, and, and they would often connect the dots themselves because there's this sense of, you know, when they were younger, they felt out of control or whatever. And so there was one of, you know, want to have much more control over their own destiny, right? Because I, I always think with these C-suite jobs that 
you know, it, so much stamina is required for those things, right? Those are three shift jobs, right? Like there's the morning hundred emails, then you actually do the work. And then there's the kind of nine to midnight shift. Um, and I've always wondered, it's like, what drives these people? And so that was one of my sort of burning questions. So I think adversity uh, is a big one. And I really appreciated the fact of how open so many of the CEOs were. Um, and some of the stories were quite sad. I had this remarkable experience that I interviewed these two CEOs back to back. They told me the exact same story. They were growing up, comfortable middle-class family. Mother stayed home, father worked. Father died of a heart attack at a relatively young age. Um, and so everybody in the family had to kind of pitch in to put food on the table. Mm -hmm. And what was remarkable is both the guys said the exact same thing. They said to me, I never wanted to put my own family in that position again, mm -hmm. to sort of having experienced that sort of deep stress. Um, and so that's one of those things that propels them. You know, a couple of other big categories. I mean, there's a lot of people who kind of hit the parent lottery, like just really interesting pairs of parents, you know, the IQ and the EQ, the entrepreneur and the psychoanalyst, right? The artist and the engineer. I heard a lot of that. Um, and then I've met a lot of people who just had, I think they were born with like volcanic energy. Um, and, uh, you know, their skin just exists to kind of contain that energy and business was just something to focus themselves on. So I think that was one of the interesting patterns is trying to understand like why, you know, it's that question, like, what is it about these people? And the second thing I'll, I'll say is th this habit, habit of mind um, that I've seen in all successful leaders, which is this ability to simplify complexity, mm -hmm. um, just to sort of distill down the complexity of the industry and the world and sort of build that into a simple model that they can then get on a stage and explain to all employees so that they can remember and they're constantly sort of testing it against new data that shows up. And to me, that's almost like, you know, one of those bedrock skills that you need to have if you're a good leader. I had a wonderful conversation yesterday with, um, uh, you know, probably one of Australia's, um, you know, best known um, leaders, influential leaders. And you know, one of the interesting things, you know, and he was open and vulnerable about, you know, points in his own career when he had imposter syndrome and things like that and talked about, you know, points reaching out for help. And, you know, that was interesting to me in terms of do you see these CEOs you're working with, do they have good support networks for themselves? Because there's a lot of, you know, you hear a lot of talk about what a lonely job it is. Yeah, they do. And, and I, I know there's a lot of sort of selection bias on my part of who I interviewed. I mean, I worked very hard to find those people who are going to be open on and honest and candid, and therefore they were more likely to be self-aware. I mean, there's a lot of high-performing jerks out there, right? We, <laughs> we all know them. We've all worked with them at some point, uh, and I worked very hard to uh, avoid them. But, you know, I, I think there's a lot of... Um, sort of imp important moments of a learning curve for a leader. Um, and, and one of those is kind of recognizing it's like, I don't have all the answers. I can't expect myself to have all the answers and I need help and it is lonely. And I think some of the other learning curves are you know, around communication. It's like, I just said this two weeks ago, why do I need to say it again? It's like, you need to say it again. Um, and I think another important lesson is around hiring and diversity at 
I heard so many people say that, you know, the first team they put together, um, it was just versions like mini me versions, right? Or the proverbial frat house. And at some point they just realized this doesn't scale. I'm not getting any new opinions here. Um, so I, I, I think that is, um, you know, that is an important step. And I, a lot of people talk about, you know, having that network, people who, ideally are, you know, really good listeners and aren't going to, you know, always just give you their opinion because they want to hear their own voice, but just be there to help them. And just this idea of a personal board of directors, I think is really powerful. Um, people that you can reach out to and say, I'm dealing with this problem. What do you think? And again, they start from a position of really wanting to listen rather than just tell you what they think. Do you have a personal board of directors for yourself? I, I do in the sense, I guess there, there are people that if I need some advice on something, I will go to the person um, who I think can help me out with that most. Um, but, you know, I, I've, I mentioned at, at the top of the interview just how important I think listening is. And I, I sometimes think about sort of my circle of friends and personal board of directors and stuff. And so much of it goes to literally like how good a listener are they? right? Like when you call them for advice, how much are they really trying to understand, you know, like the nuances and the gray areas rather than just saying, oh, here's what you should do, you know, like buy, sell, go vanilla, chocolate, whatever. And, and to me, I, I just put a huge premium on people who just say like, you know, not only listen, but can also share themselves. Like, yeah, I dealt with something similar like that before, so those qualities of like vulnerability or listening, you, you want those in your best friends, right? And I think you also want that in your personal board of directors. Mm. Can someone learn how to listen, Adam? You know, you talked about watching your, your father. Um, you know, can someone learn how to listen well? I think so. I, I think like a lot of things, it, if you approach it as a discipline and practice it um, and, uh I, I think people can get better at it. And I, I have found, um, you know, I don't, I don't meditate, but when I do interviews for various series I've done over the years, in that moment is kind of as close as I come to meditating because I've just learned over time that um, I literally have to clear my head of anything to be completely present during the conversation because I always feel like you can tell if somebody's listening to you or not. I mean, I, I always think of like eye contact as the 5G of communication. You could look somebody in the eye and tell if their head is somewhere else. Um, so I, I think it's just that, that discipline of clearing your mind, being completely present, and not judging people and really listening for comprehension um, and using you know, body language, all those things that I, I do think you can get better at it. Um, and you know, sometimes when I, 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 I give talks occasionally at business schools and this professor that I know pretty well, um, at one point he said, could you do like a lecture on listening? And I'm going like, that like, what would I say? But I started thinking about that. So I put together this module around listening and I always start it um, and end it with the same two questions. So when I first meet the group, I always ask people like, who's the best listener you know? And then I ask them like, so if, you know, some person leaps to mind, 
what is it about what they do that earns them that title in your mind? Um, and you need know, to get people to share their stories, a sister, a friend, mother, whatever. And so then we have a whole discussion around listening. And at the very end of the class, I always say, okay, so we've talked about this. Now my question for you is to each of the students, if I talk to everybody in your network, your friends, family, colleagues, and ask them who's the best listener they know, then the challenge is, would they say it's you? And there's a sort of, usually there's this pause and a lot of people start laughing. They go, they would absolutely not say that it's me. Um, but, uh, but I think it's a good life challenge. And I also think listening is one of those, you know, I, I sort of liken it to a Swiss army knife. It's just, it's incredibly useful in every context, personal relationships, work relationships. I think that, I think it is an underrated superpower of good leadership. Um, and I also think that if you are a good leader, that the world is kind of playing into your hand a little bit, because I think the skill of listening is actually on the decline, thanks to, you know, our electronic devices and stuff like that. I mean, people just live on their phones. And, um, and so I think if part of your goal in your career is to set yourself apart, I think one of the ways you do that is by being a better listener. You know, there's a lot of talk about, um, from a leadership point of view about one of the most important things is knowing who you are first. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder, um, I hear people talk about people don't spend enough time working out who they are first as a leader. Have you worked out who you are as a leader, Adam? You know, your own values? I think I have recently and it's 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 a great topic that you bring up because i i just recently wrote a column about this um and the the phrase i put on it not that i've invented anything grand but it's just like what is your personal leadership brand right like what are the values that you stand for and i think when you ask people to go through this exercise i think the specific questions you have to answer are not just like what are your values but it's like why are they important to you for driving success Right? How have you manifested these yourself in your life? Um, what are the things that you are not going to compromise on ever? Right, And so to me, like, that's how you start getting a little more specific. And I would say I spent 14 years as a manager managing teams of reporters. And I think that what I would say to people is, you know, I am very big on sort of continuous improvement. Um, I think everybody should want to get better at their job every single day and should be self-motivated to do so. Um, and I get along really well with people who are like that um, as a manager. And because I don't feel, especially when I was at the New York Times and even at Newsweek, I felt like those jobs were big responsibilities and obligations. And um, I felt like everybody should respect the, you know, in effect, the privilege, the honor of having those jobs. So that's kind of one of something that's that's bedrock to me. Um, I find as I get older, I love uh, sentences that begin with there's only two kinds of people um, or there's only two kinds of companies and stuff. And I one of my frameworks for um, managers, because I've worked for some bad bosses over the years. And, and I think one of the ways you can explain good bosses and bad bosses is, is this idea of 
bad bosses see the employees that they're managing as kind of their assets to help them achieve their goals so that they can get promoted, right? It's sort of like, what are you doing for me? Um, and I think the best leaders are much more selfless and see their job as like, I see a trajectory for you and it's my responsibility to help you along that trajectory. Um, and uh, so I, I tried very hard to be in that latter camp. Um, and I think too, I mean, having spent half my journalism career as a reporter working for editors and then the other half as being an editor myself, I just, I always just wanted to be, my guiding principles, like I wanted to be the kind of editor that I wanted when I was a, uh, when I was a reporter, just sort of somebody who was kind of thoughtful and encouraging and would read my stories carefully. And, um, you know, my, my father was in, was an editor for many years and he, he passed along this piece of advice that somebody gave him when he started editing, which was edit the person, not the words. Wow. Um, and what that meant is, you know, focus more on the, the human being, the individual and what they need and what their strengths and weaknesses are and coaching them rather than seeing your job is to like move commas and things like that on the page. Um, and so that was also, you know, always kind of a guiding principle for me. And I, I will say that the last thing that I, I will say about being a boss too, I think that, you know, at a gut level, we can feel like whether or not we trust our boss, right? Like I, you know, in the, in the proverbial whiteboard exercise of leadership, I always put the word trust at the top of the list. Cause I think that's, everything starts with that and flows from that. And I think, you know, it sort of ties back to the point I made earlier that I think you want somebody who feels like they're on your side of the table, right? Like, let's solve this together. Cause I want you to be the best you can be rather than somebody who enjoys the trappings of power, which I was never really taken by. I mean, I, I've turned down a couple of promotions in my career simply because I saw what the work was because I was the deputy to the number one. And it's like, I, pref I know what I'm good at. I'd prefer to do that. I don't want your headaches. And I, it also, I'm not really motivated by the title that's on my business card. So that's probably a longer answer than you wanted, but uh, it's a little bit of who I am. Your dad sounds like a wonderful, a wonderful man, a wonderful influence. Yeah. I know he comes up in a lot of your stories. You know, you say you just worked those values out recently. How did you navigate this whole leadership journey before that? Like, what would your guideposts have been before you invested that time? Yeah, I, th I think it was more just instinctive or just something that I hadn't thought about. And um, it, it was more you know, in, in sort of coming up, writing this column about your personal leadership brand, which we use some of co with cohorts in our consulting work, you know, as I started thinking about this more, I just turned it on myself and said, well, what would mine be? Um, and, and I will say that the experience of doing these interviews with leaders about these timeless questions, just like you're asking me, you know, I would ask them about early influences and kind of how they became who they are. I found it to be incredibly therapeutic for me um, in so far as it was like somebody holding up a mirror to me every time I would interview somebody. I mean, as I was learning to be a manager um, and a leader of teams that, you know, I'd interview somebody and 
hear about their core values and how they lead. And I would say to myself, like, okay, that's not like me. Um, and, or there were, there's a couple of people, there's, there's one guy I interviewed and Melissa, I swear I fell out of my chair when I was talking to him because it was like we were separated at birth or something. He oh, was, wow. he was talking about his own philosophy and, uh, and I was just going like, you are, articulating better than I ever could the wiring in my brain that I was kind of aware of, but um, like he just went on this riff about how he is really bad around under motivated people. Mm -hmm. And he said, I get kind of grumpy and I stop looking for win-win, uh, you know, outcomes and stuff. And I just want to kind of run the other way. And it's like, for better or worse, like that's who I am. I just, you know, I, I just, I love, I, I never really wanted to be a manager. I mean, I was a reporter for 15 years and it was a great job. And one of the main reasons I became an editor was I got tired of working for bad editors, right? And I never really wanted to manage anybody and the best people I enjoyed working with, I didn't have to manage at all, right? Because they were self-motivated and were trying to get better at their jobs. And, you know, the problem for me was motivating or managing people who were motivated as 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 much as I thought they should be. Um, and you layer on, I'm probably oversharing right now, but you know, you layer on top of that a little bit of being, you know, somewhat conflict avoidant. And, you know, I probably didn't invest as much energy and time in developing them as I could have or should have, in part though, because I just felt like I couldn't understand how you didn't want to get like 15% better every year. How did you, um, I'm going to, um, I shouldn't assume, but I'm going to assume that you ended up uh, finding the way to deal with those situations. Um, you know, as you say, conflict avoidant and, and those sorts of things. I'm assuming that you found a way to actually navigate that space. I did. I mean, I, I, it would probably be more about, um, just focusing on the work itself, because being a manager in a newsroom is, I think it's a little bit like being a department head at a university in the sense of like, there's not the sort of traditional, you know, management tools that you have. Um, it's not like the reporters necessarily want to move up uh, to have your job. Um, and, and so it was that a little bit of that feeling of like you reach down into your management toolkit and discover it's empty. Um, and so once you figure that out, then it's like, okay, well, how am I going to work with these people? And I, my strategy was simply to be, to try and gauge them intellectually. Um, and through that, hopefully motivate it and inspire them and just be really intrigued by the subject matter and the stories and, and and hope that's where I was trying to get that kind of extra click of energy um, and just that sense of like, I want you to succeed wildly beyond your dreams, but like not everybody was motivated that way. So can I um, ask about the B-suite interviews, Adam? I just think they yeah. are, they're so timely. And there were two in particular that really jumped out at me. One was an interview you did with Crystal Ashby. Mm -hmm. um, and the other one was with Laurie, um, is it Trickerson Fouch? Fouché. Fouché. Yep. And I just think they were so pertinent to um, the conversations that I've been having with leaders who want to improve their own leadership, um, 
but um, you know, feel whether it be through self-doubt or whatever the situation is, feel challenged in how to do that. And there were two things I took out of those interviews. And I'll mention those quickly. And then I just want to ask your perspective on um, uh, on those conversations. So one was around Crystal saying, realizing that she was the only female and the only black uh, person in a whole heap of different situations. And she finally got the courage to take her armor off and be herself. Um, and I think that plays through some of the things I've read in your book around, um, around that sort of space. And then the second one was from Laurie talking about personal branding. So tying back to the article you wrote again just recently and providing advice to people on the fact that, um, I think this is really pertinent for females in particular, that you have to get comfortable um, you know, talking about yourself and putting yourself forward into situations, stepping out of your comfort zone and not see it, I think, as a lot of females have seen historically, those sorts of things as bragging. I just right. wanted to get your perspective on those two things um, before I then ask you about three quick things you think people should ask themselves to improve their own leadership. Sure. Yeah. You know, I think on the bragging stuff, that's that's really tricky. And I've done a lot of interviews with people trying to get at that nuance. Like, how do you speak up for yourself and ask for the job? And, and um, you know, and, and I will say that I, it's something that I've um, thought about just in my own context, because uh, you know, you've probably heard that expression. There's workhorses and show ponies. You know, there's people who actually just do the work, and then there's the show ponies who are always like prancing around and bragging, but don't actually do the work. And yep. you sort of have to des de decide which one you are. And I, I always took the kind of workhorse approach and figure, you know, if I do really good work, that the work will speak for itself. And it it doesn't always because sometimes the show ponies are uh, are getting all the attention. Um, and so I I think the the trick there because then some people say well I don't want to be bragging like that doesn't feel comfortable for me but I think there's a nuance there to talk about like whatever you did in the context of the team right so whether you're part of the team or leading the team you know say it's like it's amazing what the team did you know and it could be clear that you were leading the team or part of the team but just so that you make clear that you have this you know, interest and ambition for the team, not just yourself. I thought that was a, a great tip that I heard from somebody. Um, so I, I think that's a big part of it. And, you know, on the, the Crystal Ashby piece about taking off your armor, I mean, one of the themes that has come up a lot in these interviews with prominent Black leaders is this idea of like, you know, you're facing headwinds all day long as a Black person, right? You're going to be in a meeting, there's going to be a microaggression, maybe a macroaggression. And I think there's a huge amount of kind of cognitive load of always trying to decide, is this the thing that I'm going to take on, right? Am I going to talk to this person after the meeting? Mm -hmm. And I think, again, that's a really, those are tricky waters to navigate because if you do that when you're too young in your career, you might get a reputation or something. But I think what I, the theme that I've heard from a lot of leaders is say they reach a level of success in their career, whether they they either, you know, the phrase we've heard a couple of times is like, I'm bulletproof, right? It doesn't matter what they want to do to me, um, you know, because they're financially set or they've achieved a level of success. But I, I think anything and everything that you can do to reach that point in life where you can, you, you sort of stop, you know, 
Crystal referred to as taking off her armor. But I, I think another way of thinking about it is like all these filters that you have is like, what am I going to say? You know, you might have a thought, but then you pass it through five filters and decide whether to say it or not. I think if you can get to the point where you just sort of take those filters off and say, I am who I am. And if you don't like it, that's your problem, not me. And I think you need to get there as a leader anyways, because leadership is not a popularity contest. Mm. Three, three things a leader should ask themselves to improve their own leadership. Um, I think the first one goes back to this idea of simplifying complexity. And I think there is, we often see a huge gap between how clear the strategy and the messaging is um, in the leader's mind and how clear it is for everybody else. So I think the first question is, is your strategy as clear to everybody on your team and in your organization as you think it is? And take steps to find out. So that's point one. Point two, I think, is is your team as, as good as it needs to be? Because I think in our, in our mentoring work, um, this is something that comes up a lot and we ask leaders about their teams and we often hear, you know, they're great, they're hardworking, they're loyal, they've been here forever, they're, you know, they're good glue for the team. It's like, let's talk about their performance. Mm -hmm. And I think when, you know, you spend so much time with people and have that sense of history, it's very easy to get on that kind of slippery slope of making excuses for them. Um, and I just think there, there is this rigor that needs, and you do need to kind of depersonalize it and just say, like, is this the team that's going to get me where we need to be? And to constantly be re refreshing uh, the team. And the third thing just goes back to listening, which is like, are you as good a listener as you think you are? And can you, what can you do to be a better listener? Mm -hmm. And I think there's a whole extra level of that for leaders, which is, you know, do you really know what's going on in your organization, right? Because I think a, an important part of being a leader is being self-aware that you are by definition trapped in a bubble and that all the information that comes to you is going to be compromised in some form or fashion. Um, and to build almost an ecosystem or infrastructure so that you can find out what is actually happening in your organization, not just the sort of two thumbs up, everything's great, boss, that you're going to hear. Adam, um, of all of these interviews that you've done, um, before I kind of lead into our final question around brave feminine leadership, I just wanted to get your perspective on, um, do you think it's possible to stereotype the any leadership issues or differences between males and females? Let, I, I will answer couple of different ways. And, and the first way will, will be, you know, I, I reflect on the first couple of hundred interviews I did for Corner Office. And I was often asking myself, like, am I seeing patterns? Because that's the way my brain works. I'm always looking for patterns. And so initially I was looking for patterns. Is there differences between the way men and women lead? And ultimately I came down to this idea based on the patterns I saw that there wasn't any difference in the sense that um, there were so many exceptions to whatever rule that the rules didn't hold up anymore. And I think rather than gender, leadership styles are born more out of things like, you know, are you an introvert or an extrovert? Um, how empathetic are you versus being like driven and goal focused? Um, and, you know, Birth order, I find, is always, you know, almost always a fascinating discussion, you know, firstborn versus lastborn versus middleborn. I think that 
tells you more about somebody's leadership style than whether they're male or female. So, um, so that's been my kind of direct experience. That said, I think, you know, we, there's been so much written and studies done that I think there are some generalizations that are fair. And I think, you know, you alluded to one earlier and, you know, sort of like women sometimes feel like they have to have hundred percent of the qualifications for the job where the guy feels like if he can fog a mirror in the morning, he's qualified. Right. <laughs> um, and, and we've seen that over and over. So um, I think at some level, there are some generalizations. And, and I think this, you know, things around like empathy and compassion, um, I think, you know, again, at the risk of generalizations, I think women tend to have that more than guys. I appreciate your response to that, because I think, um, you know, the more and more I'm asking these questions, I think the, the response I'm hearing is that it isn't necessarily about gender in terms of the leadership styles and capabilities, but it might be, um, you know, there's certainly some structural things that there's opportunities to change. And then there are some mindset things that there are opportunities to change. Um, but that in essence, um, you know, good leadership is, is good leadership. It's not about gender. It's not about race. It's not about any of those other um, kind of measures as well. Does the term of the series that I've used, Brave Feminine Leadership, you know, from your perspective, does that hold any particular meaning, that, that term? Does it bring anything to mind? It does, and I think it's really timely, Melissa, in that I feel like, you know, the world is playing into your hand if you are driving these discussions because I, you know, I am often struck by this kind of breathtaking moment that we are living through. I mean, tragedy, uh, uh, untold tragedy, but I, I often think about like the changes, these sort of tsunamis of change that are going across organizations, you know, the nature of work itself, um, you know, just the role of companies in society and just the idea that companies are now being asked to solve all of society's ills, not government agencies and CEOs and leaders are no longer, you know, business people answering to institutional shareholders. They're becoming like politicians. Mm. Um, and, but to me, the third big, big category is I think leadership is going through this fundamental change. You know, the era of command and control leadership is over, like officially over mm -hmm. time of death, you know, um, uh, and the stuff that matters now, and, and we do a lot of interviews with leaders of organizations, heads of HR talent, and we're always asking about like, what are the X factors that you're looking for in leaders now? And, and what you hear about like humanity, empathy, compassion, um, and all those things have to be balanced with things like, you know, accountability and, and, and being results oriented, but just showing up as a leader that way and that was in, incredibly important and still is while so many people are working remotely um, to just sort of set the tone. But I just think, I don't think that's going away. Um, and, you know, we could have a several hour discussion, like, are we ex expecting too much of our leaders now? Because there is that sense of like, you know, 20 years ago, if you make a list of all the competencies that a CEO had to have, like that was Superman or Superwomen just for those. And now you add on this whole level of, you know, EQ and all that. And, and these start looking like impossible jobs. But I just, you know, I just think that the world 
is changing and has changed permanently and and all the things that you're talking about in these series i just think that's that's sort of the where the essence of leadership is right now adam thank you so much for you know sharing aspects of um of who you are as a person um but also i just i can't help but think as i listen to your story what an extraordinary education you've crafted for yourself as a leader uh, in terms of the, you know, countless, um, it's not just hours, I'd be doing, you know, countless years of very deep listening um, that you've done. And, you know, I agree, it's such an underrated skill from a leadership point of view. So thank you so, so much for allowing me the chance to listen today. Um, I know there's lots of things that I'm going to digest out of our conversation, and I'm sure that the audience will as well. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, and thank you so much for the thoughtful questions. It was a great conversation. Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me, where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.